This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Jake, one of your pastors. It's good to see you guys. And we are going to dive into the book of Revelation. And today we got to open up the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And so, yeah, let's uh, open up our Bibles to Revelation 2. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And what I ask now is that you would open it up to us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Look in your Bible in verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation says that seven times in the next seven sections to each individual seven churches. Seven times it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So let's just kind of imagine for a second, because we've talked about asking, what is Revelation trying to do? If we are hearing that phrase seven times, what is Revelation wanting us to do? Shout it out. Listen, hear. It wants us to hear. But we all know that just because words are coming out of someone's mouth or speech is being used, it does not mean that you hear, right? I have this vivid memory in my mind of Coach Fernandez. And Coach Fernandez... uh, Like, I really looked up to him, not just because he was my wrestling coach, but he's probably the first adult male to look at me and tell me that I was worth something. And I had this really bad habit in in wrestling where no matter how hard I trained, I would get so nervous and choked up that I would stumble all over my own feet. I would do really stupid things during the match, and I would lose at really key points in wrestling tournaments. I would never get higher than third place because I would always, as I got further along in the tournament, I would lose. I would choke. And the first time that this really happens, I looked over to Coach Fernandez, and he's like, come over here. And I walked over to him, and I kind of expect him to grill me because that's kind of how I expected everybody to treat me. And he grabbed me by the face and he put my head right at his forehead. And I could see his eyes like inches away from my face. And it was surprising because his eyes didn't look how I thought. They were incredibly gentle and loving. And he looked at me and I I could see him and he said to me, how much he believed I was going to be a really good wrestler. And he told me how much he really thought that I had a lot of fight in me. And he called me mijo, which is Spanish for son. And then he told me all the things that I did wrong. (laughs) And then he told me what I might do next, how I should respond Seven times it says, 
we need to hear something that Jesus says to the seven churches, but we cannot hear appropriately unless we have three things. We need to see Jesus, like I needed to see my coach. And we need to have ears to actually hear what is being said, because it's going to be a mix of really beautiful affirmation and really strong rebuke. But in the end, it is all in love so that we as a church might respond. The nice thing is, is when it comes to like over and over again, it says here, we need to hear, Revelation for the next seven letters to the churches is going to follow the exact same pattern for all of them. And here's the pattern. You can throw it on the, on the screen. The first is we're going to get a vision of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus. The second is we're going to get the message to the church. We're going to hear Jesus speak specifically to each church. And then the last thing is we're going to hear a call to faithfulness. Jesus is going to say to every single church how he wants them to respond to him. And each church is just going to follow that rhythm seven times in a row that we might actually hear but you need all these ingredients. We need to see Jesus, we need to hear what he says, and we need to be able to respond to him. So let's jump into the message to the seven churches, beginning with seeing Jesus. Verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. First up, the church of Ephesus. What does he say to the church of Ephesus? Wait. We can't hear what Jesus is about to say without seeing him, remember? So we need to see Jesus. They need to see a Jesus who is saying what he's saying to them, how communication breaks down so easily when we don't see right? Think about how many fights and arguments you've gotten into over a text message because you didn't see the face of the one who was speaking. How different it would have made a difference if I saw my coach and I came over to him and he grabbed my face and then his face was a scowl. We need to see in order to hear. And so the first thing that is said to the church of Ephesus is what they are to see when they see Jesus. And here's what they see. They see him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first thing that they see is that Jesus is holding something. He is holding seven stars, and we're already told in the book of Revelation what the seven stars are. They are the seven angels over the seven churches. Why is Jesus holding angels? Because in the Old Testament imagination and in the apocalyptic literature, which we have alluded to in the last couple of weeks, angels represent the heavenly counterpart of earthly realities. Does that make sense? Like it would happen like in the book of Daniel where an angel would come and speak to Daniel and his name was Michael and he was the angel representing Israel and then he would speak as if he was gonna go fight with another angel over another nation. So it is a representation of the very spiritual nature and existence of the church, not just on earth, but in heaven. 
a significance that this means something beyond we're just getting together on Sundays. That what is going on in Ephesus is not just this new social club with a bunch of people who have the same religious opinions. They need to see Jesus holding the seven stars is to see Jesus holding in the palm of his hand them. But he's not just holding the seven stars, he's walking among the seven lampstands. And we're already told in Revelation what the seven lampstands means. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what they need to see before Jesus can even speak is that Jesus is present and walking amongst his church. That he is not far off somewhere, he's not distant, he's not got his back turned to them, but Jesus is present with Ephesus. So everything he's about to say is from the perspective of being right there. Like my coach was right there, forehead to forehead with me. They needed to see Jesus because before they could even hear him speak, they needed to know that he was with them. Some of you imagine Jesus isn't even present with you. Wherever he is, he isn't holding me. He's definitely not walking with me. In your imagination, you might actually feel like Jesus has his back turned to you. Or he is so far away that if anything is to be said to you, it is a distant echo that is irrelevant to right now your life being present. Maybe before you can even hear Jesus speak to you today, you need to actually see where he is that he walks among his church today, that he walks among your life, that he holds our very existence in his hands. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's only then when we see Jesus that we can hear Jesus. And so this is what Jesus says. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. When they hear Jesus speak, the first thing that they're going to hear is an affirmation of all that is good. Because it ain't easy being a Christian in Ephesus. If you know nothing about the ancient city, the ancient Roman ruler Domitian named Ephesus the guardian of the imperial cult of Rome. There were so many temples in that little city that there were temples that literally deified the rulers of Rome. Temples to Julius Caesar. There was temples to the Greek goddess Nike of victory. They had everything from day to day as they went around in the market, celebrations constantly of idols in their culture. And not only that, but... Here in Ephesus, it was actually the center of one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. And this temple was, I mean, it was like the main draw for the entire city's economic status. 
This is how people made their money. This is where people from all over the ancient world go to visit. And it is massive. It is impeding on every single day when you get up and look around, you would have seen the temple to the famous Artemis. Like Jim said last week, daily the Christians are getting reminders and visions of gods, goddesses, their impressive temples, the eternal Rome and its deified kings. You couldn't even go to the grocery store without trying to buy meat and know that that meat was sacrificed to an idol. I mean, can you imagine the exhaustion that comes from living that way as a Christian trying to be faithful? Every single day. And it's, it's not just that, right? It is also not just outside the church, but within the church. There are Christians in that city, in that time, who would be saying things like, hey, yes, we can be followers of Jesus. Christianity is a good idea. However, I do think we need to relax a little bit when it comes to the sexual ethic that you're teaching. Like, come on, this is 75 AD in a Roman city. You can't be reasonable. And they would preach that message while still being in the church and saying, yeah, we should be able to do this. And when everybody was so conflicted in Ephesus and you just had to go to your local sprouts, I mean the meat market, and you were trying to just do the normal things of life, you were constantly tempted of like, can I even eat this? And there were people within the church who would say, you know what? It's just, you can't do anything, it's okay. So it's not just outside of the church, it's within the church. And so Ephesus has this constant tension, this constant conundrum. I mean, can you imagine that? It would be like if today in our culture that our views of sexuality were so archaic that you knew if it ever came out, you'd be mocked. It would be kind of like that. It would be, it would be like if every day you went to work and just to live, just to make sure you can provide enough food on the table for your family, you constantly had to navigate an endless cacophony of idols and things that people worshiped within the culture like consumerism and greed and consumption. It would be like that. It sounds exhausting. Ex and Honestly, it sounds like you would do all that work and did anybody even notice? Like the only notice that you would get within your surrounding culture is that you were bizarre. And so the church in Ephesus lived their whole lives and nobody knew, nobody noticed, except Jesus. Because where is he? He is walking among them. And when they see Jesus standing among them and he speaks and they hear him speak, what does he say to them? He says, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. I know you're enduring patiently. He affirms their hard work. He affirms their resistance to idols. They were tireless in resisting getting sucked into the rest of the world and being faithful to the truth of the gospel. They, anybody who came around who claimed that they were a follower of the gospel, they would run through lists of tests and they would go, do you actually line up with the truth? If you don't, goodbye. Like they were resilient and they needed to hear Jesus speak and hear him affirm what was good in them. They needed to hear from their savior. I know. I know how hard it is. And you need to hear it too. 
You need to hear Jesus say that I know you are enduring patiently. You need to hear Jesus say today, I know your commitment to the truth. Some of you, it feels like your fight against sin daily is like pulling off your fingernails and you need to hear Jesus say, I know your toil. When it is so exhausting to watch another friend walk away from the faith, when your patience wanes because you've been praying for your family and your friends who don't believe in Jesus for it seems like decades and they still don't, you need to hear Jesus say, I know how exhausting it is. When every day feels like a fight to pursue celibacy, and when you see everyone else celebrating a sexuality and a lifestyle that looks so much like freedom, and you're stuck alone, you need to hear Jesus say, I know how hard the fight is. We need the affirmation today just as much as Ephesus did. Because if Jesus is not present walking among his church, and if he doesn't say, I know, no one else is going to. He is present. He is present church. He walks among his church. He speaks to them, and when we hear him, we hear him affirm the good. But they also need correction. In verse four, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This might sound like Jesus is just warming them up to get to the critique, right? Like a backhand compliment kind of thing. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna say some nice things and then I'm gonna say what I really need to say. But it's not a way of softening them up before the blow. It feels that way to us often because in our, in our culture, we believe that absolute affirmation is the deepest expression of love. But anybody who's been in a long-term relationship, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a brother or sister knows that's not how it works. <laughs> to really be present with someone in love and to speak, you have to be able to speak both to the good and correct what is wrong. In fact, God points out in the book of Hebrews, listen to this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are a child, he corrects you. I didn't, I didn't just need my coach to look me in the eye and affirm me. I needed him to help me not do what I was doing wrong. Like I needed to actually change. The, the beautiful thing is that he saw in me what was good and then he was pointing me out of what I was failing at. We need both of those things. And so Jesus walks among the churches. He speaks these words of affirmation, but he can also come and speak a word of correction. And what he tells the church in Ephesus, they have abandoned the love they had at first. There is a side effect to their resilience. A side effect to their endurance and commitment to the truth, they have abandoned love. What kind of love? There's actually a variety of opinions 
if you're reading through the books on Revelation, is this love of God? Is this love for one another? There's even some people who argue this is love for the outside world in that Ephesus has grown cold in their witness and evangelism. But luckily for us, we just finished 1 John, right? And we know you cannot love God and not love one another, yeah? In fact, if you love one another, it is evidence that you love God. And you cannot really understand the love and grace and and everything given to us in Jesus and then not have that flow out of your mouth and share it with the world. In fact, Jesus said, you're gonna be known that this is true in you because of the love you have for one another. So we don't even need to go, which kind of love? It's all of them. All of them work together. The core of the gospel and the teachings of Jesus is love. And they've lost it. They have lost the love that they had at first. And what's so sad about this is this is exactly what Ephesus was famous for at the beginning. If you remember, if you read through the book of Ephesians, Paul highlights to them and he, and he tells them that because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, I don't stop giving thanks to God for you. Like he's amazed by their love. That's how they began. They were known as a church of love, but they lost it. How could this happen to them? How could a church so centered and grounded in love actually lose that? It doesn't say. It doesn't say exactly what happened, does it? Which for us actually is a little more piercing. Because somewhere along the way, this church was doing so many things, they forgot why they were doing them in the first place. They forgot the core of their faith, and they were now in danger of being like those people that Jesus says, who did many things in his name, and then in the end, Jesus says, I never knew you. And so Ephesus, who started this way, is now in danger of ending up losing their love. And even without the specifics, we can imagine how this could happen, right? It's not that hard to imagine. It's the couple that got married and moved into a house together who over time forgot they got married and moved in to be together, to be together more. And then just years go by and they become like roommates. It's the friendships that we have that we started off with a lot of excitement and commitment to one another. And then as time went on, we just kind of go through the motions. They forgot. They were so caught up in committing to the right things, resisting the idols of the culture, committing to the truth, that they forgot the core of the Christian faith is love. So when Jesus is walking among the church and they see him and they know he holds him and he affirms the good, he also can critique and say, hear this, you abandon the love you had at first. And they need to hear that. What about us? In our fight, in our endurance, in our challenges of being Christians in Tempe, what have we maybe lost? Have we crept slowly as a church from this missional posture 
where we love God so much we cannot help but love the city, are we in danger of drifting into a people who get together every week for a form of spiritual self-care? Have, are we in danger of losing our hunger to be with God because of who he is? And do we start to treat him over time more and more like a self-help concierge? What about me? I was thinking about this morning when I first became a Christian. Uh, I would set aside times in the evening where I would go to a, some coffee shop, like Extreme Bean, and I would sit there and pick a book of the Bible, and I would read it, and I would write lengthy, like, just notes, just processing and praying and enjoying, because I was, I was blown away that God could speak through a book and I could hear it. And I thought this morning, my job is basically reading the Bible. If I got fired tomorrow, would I still have that? Or have I gotten used to it over time in such a way that I forgot what it was like at first? What about you? Did you used to love God so much that you would show up at church with a desperate heart and attentive mind because you knew God might talk to me today? And now you come just because it's the Christian thing to do. Did you used to love God's people so much that you would, you'd sacrifice sleep to be with them and now you're so busy curating your life's relationships you only have time for those who energize you? Did you used to love Jesus so much that you didn't actually care how nuanced you were in explaining your faith you, or how well you could share the gospel? It just started bubbling up out of your mouth. You just had to tell people about it, even if it was like half incorrect. Did you lose that love? You need to hear the voice of Jesus. I have this against you. You abandoned the love you had at first. But the whole point of hearing of seeing Jesus walk amongst the churches and hearing what he has to say, both the affirmations and the corrections, is that what we might respond. My coach didn't give me a pep talk to make me feel better. He held me face to face so that I would know that he saw me as miho. And then he told me what I needed to go do because he had a vision of my future better than I did for myself. Does that make sense? And so Jesus holds the church face to face. He tells them what they need to hear, both the good, the affirmation, because he is present with them and he loves them and he tells them what they have lost so they can respond. You're not actually hearing unless you respond, are you? And so the last thing that we see in this pattern through the churches is that they are called to respond to Jesus Look at verse five, it says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. How is the church at Ephesus to respond to hearing Jesus speak? They are to remember where they started. They are to remember what they did at first. They are to repent. They are to turn around in the other direction and do what they did at first. 
When Ephesus first heard the gospel of Jesus, they were so blown away and so excited, they went and rounded up as a community all their collections of sacred texts and magic art books and all the cult-affiliated stuff they had. And, and get you, that was just normal stuff in culture. They rounded it all up and they brought it to the center after they heard the good news about Jesus and they threw it in a pile and they set it on fire and they burned some 50,000 pieces of silver worth of things. That's $4 million worth in a tiny town in the ancient world. They were so in love with God, they didn't care what they had to sacrifice. Jesus calls the church to respond in Ephesus and he says, Repent. Do the things you did at first. Remember where you have fallen. And so they are called to remember. And what we're speaking of here, hear me, is not, it's not chasing after this initial feeling of excitement and euphoria that could be associated with early faith. That's good. But we don't need to go chasing that again. In fact, a lot of people have made a shipwreck of their faith, their marriages, their life, chasing after a feeling they used to have. Do not go back to what you had at first because it's novel. Go back to what you had at first because at first, you can remember what it's like to not have it. Go back to what you had at first because at first, you were like a child. You couldn't believe that God called you. Go back to what you had at first in that when Jesus first showed up in your life, you were like a child in that you could not believe that God was this loving. You don't need to go back to an emotion. You need to go back to a posture and you need to do what you did at first. Jesus says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This sounds harsh, and a bit terrifying, and I think it should. I think it should, but when we reflect on these words of Jesus, you need to remember Revelation isn't saying anything new, is it? What do you call a church that does a lot of good things, but at its heart has no love? Not a church. What do you call a Christian who could pass a theology test on what Christians should believe, but doesn't love other Christians and doesn't love God. Not a Christian. And so it is a sad and harsh warning because when you think about the reality of the history, Ephesus lies in a country that is 99% Muslim today and there is no church in Ephesus. The Bible's got promises, the Bible's got warnings. Today, you gotta hear the warning. And it is harsh because it's supposed to be harsh. But again, you have to see the face of Jesus, don't you? Because if you don't, you forget he holds us in his hand and he walks among the church. He is the power and everything we need to repent and to change. And so he says in this moment, yet you have this. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, short answer, people in the church saying that they can be followers of Jesus, but totally compromise on the teachings of sexuality and idolatry. 
And so Jesus, in this moment where I think they probably are feeling the fragility that we all feel hearing this, goes, I still see the good. I need you to hear, I still see the good. Because there is, I've heard it said uh, from a couple of authors, Christian authors like Jim Wilder and others, we often talk about shame as only a bad thing, but there could actually be a version of toxic shame which we're familiar with, but also a godly version of it. And whatever you want to, word you want to use, if not shame, is fine, but I'll use it for now. Toxic shame would be like my coach pulling me aside and saying, you're not even a wrestler. It destroys relationship, it gives no way out, and no future forward. But a godly version of this says you are mine, and you are not living in a way that reflects who you really are. So we're gonna walk in another direction and I'm gonna help you and it's gonna be hard, but we're gonna do it together. That would be a healthy version of this. And so Jesus has, has the power to both highlight the good and critique and correct his church. Why? He holds them in his hand. He loves them. He walks with them. And what he wants for them is to respond to him in light with eternal life. Because If you think about all of this, how do we actually have the courage, the bravery, the resilience to do this? So every church letter ends in the same kind of way. That's how we started. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Read that next part. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Did you know that throughout the town of Ephesus, there were statues to the goddess Nike? Do you know what that Greek word is? It's the same word here in conquer, nikao. And so every day long, they're seeing what it looked like in Rome to conquer in the athletic events, in the way the Caesars were portrayed as conquering. It would be impossible to get through the day without knowing what Rome saw conquering to mean. And so they are forced to ask when they think about their faith, when Jesus is dying on the cross, who's conquering who? Rome? Or is there another vision for conquering that could be in the kingdom of God? Did you know that at the heart of the city of Ephesus, there was a temple to Artemis? And do you know what was in the center of that temple? A garden. You know what was in the center of that garden? A tree. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation over and over and over again for the rest of it is gonna redefine what conquering means, what victory means. The world, church in Ephesus, it'll say, will tell you it looks like athletic events, it looks like mighty warriors, it looks like Roman empires, but God is telling you that conquering looks like faithful suffering unto death. And it might look like this this temple in the middle of the city has everything going for it. I mean, why would you even have a cult in the center of the city? Why? Because it was a cult for fertility and life and paradise and a garden. Who doesn't want that? And yet, where is that garden today? It's a pile of rubble. Where is the tree of Artemis of the Ephesians? It's dead. 
And so Jesus says to his church, even though everything around you is gonna try to convince you that you need to make up your own version of garden reality and find your own trees of life, I'm telling you that if you conquer in the way that Jesus conquers, if you live faithfully witness until the point of death, even if it's little deaths day by day, you will get to eat of the tree of life that will never end. You will get to be a part of the paradise that God is gonna cover over the face of the earth. Church, hear what Jesus says to the seven churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. He is coming back. And so we are called to see Jesus face to face to hear what he has to say, and to respond to him. Why? Because he promised us eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would hear what you have to say to the seven churches, and not just to the seven churches, but to us. I pray that we might see a picture of you, Jesus, that allows us to hear you today, to respond to you today. I pray that we might, that your spirit would reveal all the different ways that we are trying to find life outside of you, the ways that we have compromised and given up love, And that, Jesus, you would invite us to turn around, to remember the love we had at first, to repent, and to do the things that you've called us to do. Amen. Appropriately now, we have heard the word of God speak, and so now we're going to respond. That response extends into the whole week, right? But we're going to start off today by responding to God, by singing to him and rejoicing and reminding ourselves who he is. We're gonna respond to God by taking bread, taking wine and being reminded today as we eat, this is what it means to conquer, a suffering and crucified Messiah. We give And we give because God has given everything to us in Christ. How could we not be generous? And we pray. And I think today in particular, I just wanna highlight, if you have heard something from Jesus that you need to respond to, you don't even know how to begin, come and pray with us. And with that, I'll give you guys time to respond. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.